and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr. Sally LePage. In this episode, we're venturing into ancient territory and archaeological digs, excavating the complex ethics of extracting and sequencing DNA from human remains. In our last episode, Kat discussed what we can learn from extracting DNA from artefacts we leave behind, whether that be chewing gum or a lock of da Vinci's hair. This week, we're flipping the topic on its head and asking, should we sequence that DNA in the first place? Or should old artefacts remain buried and untouched? Is it okay to dig up remains for the sole purpose of getting genetic information out of them? And how far back is it acceptable to do this kind of research? To dig into it all, who better to chat to than University of Leicester geneticist Professor Churi King, who in 2013 led the genetic identification on the remains of King Richard III in a car park in Leicester. I began our conversation asking how this historical missing person investigation came about in the first place. So Richard III was King of England from 1483 to 1485. There are some contemporary records. One talks about him having one shoulder higher than the other. So when we were excavating, we thought, hmm, maybe we'll find somebody with a spinal abnormality, but we weren't quite sure. So what we know about Richard is from some historical records, but for a lot of people, their image of him comes from Shakespeare. But it's been known from historical records that Richard III was buried in the choir of the Church of the Grey Friars. That's been known for centuries. And then 1538, you get the dissolution of the monasteries, and the friaries torn down, and a lot of it ends up in the cathedral over the road, actually. The land is then bought by a chap called Robert Herrick, who talks about how Richard is buried, you know, in his garden type thing. So the idea when we start the excavation is, okay, we know where Richard's supposed to be in the friary, we're going to put two long, thin trenches staggered down the main car park because what we want to do is run the trenches north-south. We know main walls of friary buildings run east-west. So if we run the trenches north-south, we won't be finding ourselves right in between them. We'll hopefully cross them. And then we can start to work out, okay, where are we? Because we kind of need to generate a map of the friary to then home in on the choir. Little do we know that the very first day that we do the excavation, six hours and 34 minutes in, we hit a little bit of leg bone. But you can't just excavate human remains. We have no idea where we are. We don't know if this set of remains is inside the church or outside the church. We still need to work out quite where we are. We've got, there's money already in the excavation pot to do up to six sets of remains. But ethically, you have to choose which six are those going to be. We want to at least find the choir first. And we thought maybe this year it might be that we work out what the map is. And then next year we can home in on where we think the choir might be. So we have to get a license from the Ministry of Justice. And so you apply, you say we're going to lift up to six sets of remains. And obviously what we're going to be doing is making some educated and ethical decisions about which ones we're going to go for. So at this time, because we don't know where we are, we keep it covered, we don't uncover it, and we keep excavating. And then by the end of around the second week, we start to realize that actually we've uncovered what looks like sort of cloistral walk, one end of what looks like the church. And so it looks like that where we found that skeleton on the first day is at one end of the choir. 
let's make that number one of our six that we've already got the money for. So we go and start excavating it. So this is Joe Appleby, who is our osteologist, and I start excavating. And we start from the legs. We start to kind of move our way up. And then it's getting late in the day. We can't leave a skeleton uncovered. So it's decided we're not going to go any further. I've got to go to a conference the next day, a forensics conference in Innsbruck. So Joe is going to continue doing the excavation the following day on her own. And as I'm leaving to go off to this conference, I'm like, oh, I'm not going to miss anything. This will be a 90-year-old fire, right? It won't be anything very exciting. And then I text the next day when I landed at this conference in Innsbruck and I texted Joe and said, so how's our 90-year-old fryer? And she goes, oh, um, you know, youngish male head injuries, hunchback, because she had been excavating new work from the outside in. She'd done the skull. It's got battle injuries on it or injuries on it, perimortem injuries, so at her around the time of death. But she's going, okay, I'm not going to get too excited. This could be a friar who just met a nasty end or a patron or something. But what she's then trying to do is work from the pelvis up to the skull, and she's trying to follow it in a straight line, the spinal column. And she's finding the vertebrae, and she's finding the vertebrae, and then she suddenly can't find the vertebrae in a straight line. She starts going a bit sideways, and she finds one, and then she finds another one, and she finds this curve. And she said the hair on the back of her neck went up, because Richard is famously described in Shakespeare as being a hunchback. And he's in the ground at the moment. She can't tell which way the spine, you know, is it a hunchback or sort of a sideways curve? So she said, oh my goodness, you know, this this looks like it could be him. So yes, yeah, so I missed all of that. <laughs> what kind of permissions do you need to get to sequence the DNA of a skeleton that's been taken out of the ground? Is there any kind of extra ethical permission step that you need to go through? For remains that are over a hundred years old, you don't require permission. If you want to look at remains that are under a hundred years old of someone who is deceased, then you need to seek permission of a relative. But for remains that are over a hundred years old, there's no special permissions that you need to go through. But we always go through the ethics committee at the university for that kind of thing. Yeah, because I mean, Richard III is so famous. And I think most people would agree it is ethical to sequence his DNA because we want to know it's him. There's a big cultural significance to it. But then what about DNA of more recent monarchs? So like Queen Victoria, she died over 100 years ago. But we know her family history. And we know that the recently coronated King Charles is a direct descendant and so are there extra ethical steps then? Like there's still only a small number of generations between her and the current King of England. With all of these things, there has to be a research question. It's not like you go and just sort of do this willy-nilly type thing. And I think this is the really interesting thing because some people will say, well, he was a King of England. Does this require special status? And I think, well, actually, when we're looking at human remains, we're looking at human remains regardless of who they are. And that requires a real level of what are you doing this research for? What is the research question? And is that a valid research question? Because one of the things that you're doing when you're looking at ancient DNA is it's destructive. You have to crush the bone to a powder. So 
It is a destructive process. So you have to think very carefully, what is the research question here? And does it justify this process? Which is why you always go through ethical approval at your institution and consult widely about, you know, what what are the implications of doing this? What was your research question with Richard III? So with Richard, it was identifying him. We need to do the DNA analysis to be able to identify his remains. To identify someone with DNA sequencing, usually you have a reference that you're comparing them to, like a relative. Who do you compare to in the case of a 600-year-old king? Yeah. (laughs) So this is where you have to use really specific relatives. So the DNA that we have is a really complex mixture of that, of just some of our many ancestors. And that's because the way of our DNA is passed down. It's this real mixture. But there's two pieces of DNA that are passed down through the generations in a really, really simple way. So one of these is mitochondrial DNA. So that's a small circular piece of DNA. It's in the egg. So we girls, we pass it down to all of our children. But because it's in the egg, it's only daughters who pass it on. So it's passed down kind of virtually unchanged, except for it gradually, you get little mutations that happen as it goes down through the generations. And we know about that. So we can kind of take that into account. And then the other piece of DNA, which is passed down really simply, is the Y chromosome. So that's one of our sex chromosomes. Men have got a Y chromosome and Y chromosome is passed down by a father to all of his sons, who then pass it down through the male line as well. And again, it'll gradually accumulate little mutations as it's passed down, and we know about that. So we had female line relatives of Richard III. So Richard could not pass down his mitochondrial DNA because he's a boy, and he had no known living descendants who survived. He had a son who died quite young. He had, it's rumored, illegitimate children, a daughter and a son, both of whom didn't have children to pass down. So what we had to do was we had to go up the tree to Richard's mom, down again to Richard's sister, who had a daughter, who had a daughter, who had two daughters, down through the generations until we got to a chap called Michael Ibsen. So he was actually known when the project started. He is living in London, happy to do a DNA sample. So that was great. But we wanted to find as many people as possible. And then we found this other lady called Wendy Doldig. I couldn't believe her surname. <laughs> it's like you were kidding me. <laughs> Not a dull dig we've been on. We've been on a very exciting dig. So I called this lovely lady who, when I first rang her up and said, Hi, I'm Trey King. I'm calling from the University of Leicester. And you might have heard about the Richard III project. And I started listening. And I know I think you might be um, a relative. And uh, I'm wondering if you'd be interested in, in helping us by doing a DNA test. So we had two living female line relatives of Richard III. So I'm looking at their mitochondrial DNA to see if there's a match because the tree is correct. There should be a match between them. And then if it's richer, there should be a match there. And there was. That's incredibly lucky, though, to have an unbroken mother-daughter, mother-daughter, mother-daughter line. Yes. For that length of time. Exactly. (laughs) And it's quite tricky. So we're quite lucky in the fact that Richard's from a noble family. So his family tree is well documented. So his fame there actually helped you answer the question of, was was it him? Yes. Does being famous make a difference when we go back to this kind of, what is the research question? Is there a, a justifiable reason to sequence someone's DNA? Because in the last episode we heard from Kat, uh, they've recently 
sequenced the DNA of Van Gogh, Beethoven. They've just done Mendel. Yeah. I mean, sequencing <laughs> the genetics of the geneticist. The irony, right? Yeah. So when it comes to, okay, this is a person who has died, so they cannot consent to their own sequencing of their DNA. And I was previously having a chat about whether people should do, you know, 23andMe style tests. And there's big questions as to whether you want to consent to do that or not. So how do you decide that it's okay? And does fame tip that balance one way or another? My understanding is things with Beethoven, they were interested in finding about genetic predisposition towards things like deafness, and they thought he had died of liver disease and all this kind of stuff. So it's marrying up genetics with the history and trying to understand whether or not the genetics can shed some light on what we know about the historical individual. So it's a research question about trying to understand that. And that is a tricky one, I think, with famous individuals in terms of deciding about what your research question is. But I think that this whole kind of understanding what your research question is and the ethics behind it applies to anybody, any human remains you are working on. And you can answer some really interesting questions through doing this kind of thing, like looking at population movements, understanding about ancient disease and how it's evolved and how can that help us in understanding about how these diseases have evolved. So there can be some really interesting questions that you can answer using ancient DNA. And it's a case of how many of these sets of human remains do you deal with to answer that question? So I think it's something which applies to every project, not just something when you're looking at famous individuals. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. You can find out more information about this episode on our website, geneticsunzipped.com, or come and say hello to us over on Twitter at Genetics Unzip. As part of the celebrations for the 70th anniversary of the Double Helix, the Genetics Society held an art competition for school students. They were invited to submit artwork based on the theme DNA Past, Present and Future, and today the winners are announced. The runner-up is Hashim Siraj, age 14, who used paper and acrylic paint to create a colourful Rorschach-esque piece in double. And the winner is... Isla Scott, age 14, who created a punchy front page featuring archive news headlines about genetics. Congratulations to both students who have won vouchers for themselves and their schools, and Isla's artwork will be on the cover of the Society's journal, Heredity. And, as you've probably guessed, we'll put both pieces up on our website in the show notes for you to look at at geneticsunzipped.com. For now, let's get back to my chat with Professor Cherry King. And who gets to decide or who should get to decide? You mentioned that there's this ethical committee, presumably at the University of Leicester, you're dealing with remains of a body in Leicester. But if you're going on expeditions, field trips around the world, then who gets to decide? Oh, that, now that's really, that's a really important question. So it's an area, particularly in North America, which is quite big at the moment, and that's looking at remains from indigenous populations. I grew up in Canada. I grew up in Vancouver. 
And in the late 80s, I started working on archaeological excavations. And it was just the norm that on every excavation I was on, we knew whose land this was on. So we're working in this particular place, and that's part of this, you know, First Nations land. And they were always involved. And I think that sometimes that's something that hasn't been happening in the past. So for me, involving First Nations communities is just something you would automatically do, but hasn't been for some people and hasn't been necessarily in the past. And I think that's something which is incredibly important to do. First of all, you have to speak with the local communities, the First Nations communities, but also what are the legal requirements of the country that you're working in or the area that you're working in? So you have to go through all of the proper processes. And sometimes that might mean that you don't get to work on those remains because it's decided that, no, we don't want you to do that. And that has to just be it. So I think it's all about engagement. It's about going through the proper ethical and legal processes, really engagement with the communities, talking about what would they like to know? You know, we might have our research questions. What would they like to know? And how can we work together collaboratively on this project? And also, once the project is finished, what's next? You know, how is that information looked after? I think that's really, really important to have. These are human remains, and we may feel about them differently than other people do. So certain groups, there will be a real spiritual tie with ancestors that we possibly don't have when we think about our own ancestors. And we have to be really sensitive to that. So I think it's incredibly, incredibly important to work on any projects like that in a collaborative basis within the legal framework that's specific to what you're working on. There's so many different ethical considerations here. And fairly recently, a group of geneticists published a list of five recommendations for researchers working on ancient DNA. And they had some ethical dilemmas, like little what if stories. And I just want to read one of them to you because to me, I don't know where I would start with this. So bear with me as I just read what one of these hypothetical ethical dilemmas is. So archaeologists based in Southern Africa approach a genetics lab in Europe about an important new find. They've excavated a site that provides the earliest evidence of metal tool production and which includes an extensive graveyard. Without consulting anyone, the archaeologists send skeletal remains of a hundred people to the lab. No one's ever studied such a large sample of remains from this very ancient period. A postdoc in the lab does some searching online and learns that the site is hugely controversial. Two local tribes have battled over the site, each claiming to be descended from it. One tribe, the majority in the region, supports the archaeological work and living members have even offered their DNA for comparison. The minority tribe, however, objects to the excavations and argues that it is sacrilegious to disturb the dead. What should the geneticists do? (laughs) You stop right there because this has been done without consultation and these are human remains. So you stop right there. I think what you have to do is you have to go back and talk to the various groups and discuss about what the idea is about the study, 
what you'd want to have a look at, what it would involve. And you would have to have quite a large consultation about this and check whether or not when the archaeologists were doing the excavation, have all proper procedures been followed legally and make sure that everything has been done properly and also have a plan for if it does go ahead and it may not because if people are really objecting, then, you know, what happens afterwards? Who's involved in this? Do members of the community go on the paper? Are they involved with it? So you'd have to stop right there and I think probably start almost from square one with that one, I think. In this hypothetical scenario, it sounds like after the consultation that the majority tribe will be in favour of it and the minority tribe will be against it. It's kind of both of their histories. So you could say, okay, well, there's obviously this controversy, we're going to step back, but then does one side have a right to know? Because it's very similar to the modern ethical questions that we have when we were talking about Chris Hemsworth getting his Alzheimer's genetic test, for example. If one family member wants to know, they share that genetic history, genetic information with their current family members. And so if you find out, you're kind of also making the decision for them. So in this situation, which is hypothetical, where you have these two contrasting opinions and you can't have one finding out and you can't have a middle ground here. Either the information is known or it isn't. How do you balance those two sides? I think that would be an incredibly difficult situation to be in. I personally would not want to go ahead unless both sides were happy with it. And I think that that involves dialogue because it may be that after you speak to the minority group and you explain what it is that you want to do and find out what their concerns are. Is there anything that they would be interested in finding out? It may well be that after a consultation that they go, actually, no, we would like to find out. Or it may be that they don't. And I think that's really difficult. These are not your remains to start playing with and doing the genetic analysis with. And I think it has to be something that if there is concerns around it, you don't do it. I mean, you could argue that if you go back far enough in time, this is everybody's history, mm. especially with the human population bottleneck, Yeah, is that if you go back far enough, sure, they are more directly related, presumably to the people on the land where you find them. But it's still the history of almost all people on the planet. Yeah. So does the whole planet get to have a say? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is this is where you start running into a complete kind of ethical kind of I suppose with all ethical kind of questions, it's about benefits and that sort of outweighing versus not. And so I think that has to come into it. Yeah, it's an incredibly difficult question. I would always err on the side of caution, I think. With this sort of thing. But I mean, it is interesting. So for example, years ago, I was approached by a chap who believed that his great aunt may have been one of the last canonical victims of Jack the Ripper. And he was happy to do a DNA test to prove that this was his aunt. So that would mean then going and excavating the remains of this woman called Mary Jane Kelly. Now, Mary Jane Kelly was 
killed in the late 1800s, thought to be the last main victim of Jack the Ripper. And she's buried in a graveyard in London. But she's buried in sort of a communal grave. So we know from the records from the graveyard that she's surrounded by several people and she's kind of in a, on top of a stack of people who are buried there, essentially. So in the 1940s, what happened was they took up all of the gravestones and then they reordered them. So we did a kind of a desk-based study to go, how likely is it that if we tried to excavate that we might come down on top of Mary Jane Kelly? Because in order for me to do the DNA analysis or anybody to do the DNA analysis, you've got one end of it, you've got this great nephew, but you have to know that the skeleton that you're looking at is Mary Jane Kelly, because if there's a DNA match between them, how do you know it's not because you've just got the wrong skeleton there? So to go and actually excavate in this site, you would also be trying to trace living descendants to say, look, are you happy? Because we would be disturbing these graves, trying to find Mary Jane Kelly's grave. There would be several hundred people in there of whose descendants you would have to try and trace and contact and then ask them, how do you feel about this? And just one of them has to say no, and you would stop. So we felt we're not even going to start. This is completely unethical to disturb so many graves in the hopes of finding a single individual whose remains may or may not even be there anymore, and how would we identify them anyways if they've been dug through? So ethically speaking, we thought this is just not right. We couldn't possibly do this. And it was interesting because in the case of Richard III, so there was um, a case brought by people who are descended from Richard's family about where he should be reburied and that they hadn't been consulted. But there were estimated between about 1 in 17 million people alive today who are equally related to Richard III as he was. So what are you going to do? Trace every single one and contact all of them and ask for their opinion? So that case was thrown out of court because, you know, it's simply not possible to do. And it's so far back and of the public interest in terms of identifying the remains. So yeah, there are some times where you simply look at a case and you go, yeah, no, I'm not I'm not happy to go there because I think ethically, the research question does not justify the disturbance of these remains. It doesn't justify it. That's all for now. Thanks to Professor Churi King for chatting with me. We'll be back next time with a special look at the Genetic Society Symposium when Kat will be chatting with some of this year's speakers on the topic of DNA, past, present and future. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip and please do take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app or review us on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference and it helps more people discover the show. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written, presented and produced by me, Sally LePage. It's a first Create the Media production for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learners' societies dedicated to promoting research, training, teaching and public engagement in all areas of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. The executive producer is Kat Arney. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard. The logo was designed by James Mayle and audio production was by Emma Werner. 
Thank you for listening and until next time, goodbye.